0: Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought provoking interviews with world leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your non can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jake here from Fulfilled. Today I'm very excited to be talking with world-renowned fundraising expert, hope I can say that, uh, Ken Burnett. Ken, welcome. Thank you, Jake. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. No, no, it's an honor to have you, and I've actually got to know you 15 minutes to the lead up on this, and it's been very interesting, so we're in store for something special, but tell us about the beginning of your fundraising journey. What were some key lessons you learned in those early years?
1: Yeah, okay, that's, um, I think, uh, Jake, that I was very lucky in that I was recruited to a very small startup charity, but it was part of a much bigger family that. In fact, actually, the guy who recruited me was the founder of Oxfam, the the businessman who was behind Oxfam. And he wanted to start a very, uh, uh, he wanted to start a new charity for young people. And his rather eccentric idea was to recruit young people to run it. So I was um, joint chief executive in my first charity role at the age of at the the fine old age of 26 years old. So um, uh, kind of weird really, Uh, but I was lucky and I worked with a couple of people who were the the architects of Oxfam. Uh, So the guy who was a huge influence to me was uh, Harold Sumption who was the founder of the International Fundraising Congress in Holland. Uh, And he was um, coming towards the end of his career, took me under his wing, uh, there was another chap who was the former director of Oxfam called Sir Leslie Kirtley, and uh, and an American called uh, Roland Hudson, who um, he was my co-chief executive, uh, and uh, we had a we had a great deal of freedom to um, innovate. Uh, it was. You have your guess by the long hair, and the, I mean I'm in lockdown, obviously, and I've kind of become a bit like uh, a refugee from Treasure Island. But um, uh, we were lucky uh, because uh, you know this was 1977, so 43 years ago, and there wasn't much competition. There was no Institute of Fundraising. There was no uh, seminars. There were no b- good books on fundraising. But we had the, a great deal of ambition, and we had the chance to experiment and so the the key lesson I think that I got right at the beginning of fundraising was that you need to give fundraisers kind of the space and opportunity to do their work uh, you need to enable them to take risks and to um, and, and also the big the big thing in fundraising you need to invest properly in doing the job properly, so that you can test what works uh, and you can make mistakes and learn and move forward. So um, uh, I think that was hugely, it was a great place to start in fundraising. I do feel I've been lucky, but I've also learned that the harder you work, the luckier you get. So. Uh, I think one of the things that I quickly picked up on was that you have to give fundraisers the chance to immerse themselves in the work that your charity, your cause does so that they can develop their own inspirational uh, stories. And you need to do that also with your trustee board. So you need to take your trustee board with you so that they know what's involved in great fundraising. Uh, and I find well, I know I I, I know we'll, we'll I'm sure we'll come and talk about boards uh, later. But um, one of the great things that I learned quite early on, I'm a big fan of David Ogilvy, who's you know one of the leading advertising gurus in in history, uh, and um, uh, he said, if you think education is expensive try ignorance. And, and I find in the fundraising, not-for-profit, voluntary sector uh, that there's way too much ignorance, that people don't do their homework, that they um, have not had to go through any process whereby, you know, if you've got somebody comes in to install your internet or fix your telephone or um, you know service your fridge or whatever, <laughs> These guys, they need to know what they're doing. Uh, you don't have that in fundraising. And I fear that we're moving, it's much, much better than it was. And there's much more sources of information available. But um, the thing that I think gave me a, a head start in my career was um, I just loved it. And I was so hungry to learn how to do it better. And I found that. Uh, I was in an organization that created the space that I could do better. So the charity that I worked with um, grew very quickly and uh, and that didn't do me any harm at all. So I hope that, uh, that that's really probably enough about the beginning. You know, if we go back to 1743 when I was a young fundraiser, it, it, uh, I can talk for hours on that.
0: Great answer. Great way to start. Um, And you mentioned uh, briefly about, you know, uh, you learnt from certain mistakes in the past. And what stands out as one of your greatest learnings from a specific mistake that you made in the past?
1: Uh, I've certainly had as many mistakes as I've had successes. And I, I, I think you have to be prepared. You know, if you're not prepared to fail, then you're not trying hard enough. And so, Um, Actually, I was talking with um, somebody in a not-for-profit organization, quite a large one, uh, recently, and they said, oh, we tried that and it didn't work, so we're never going to work with those guys again. And I thought, you know, how crazy that is because if you're not testing and trying things and um, learning and moving on, you know, I think in the commercial world, Nine new products will fail before you find the one that really runs, and if we have that attitude in our sector, then I don't think we'll get very, uh, very far. But um, I mean, I made a lot of I made a lot of very foolish mistakes in my in my early years, and I also um, I remember visiting a couple of donors in um, in the south of England to brilliant elderly uh, ladies who um, uh, Gave quite substantial sums of money, but because we were doing so well with press advertising and loose inserts and then we started using direct mail effectively and um, I failed to develop major giving in ActionAid and again, I think other organizations moved ahead of me in that particular area but we were so we were so effective with um with uh direct marketing that uh, probably it didn't it didn't really matter but certainly uh i think you need to have a broad kind of portfolio of fundraising activities and i probably could have had uh, a wider repertoire of fundraising methods but Um, but what we did do was we refined certain and we were always testing and we were always reinvesting and um, we were highly entrepreneurial Uh, and to be entrepreneurial you need to take risks and of course that's uh, anathema to many trustee boards which is very tragic and of course I think what I've seen over my career is particularly in the 1980s and the 90s the charities that did really well were those that invested and particularly those that invested in building a strong donor supporter file um, which led to me kind of developing a particular approach to fundraising which I tried to define in a book called relationship fundraising
0: Yes, no, it's done a lot of great work in the profession and relationship fundraising is a great read. So, for any fundraisers who haven't yet picked it up, start there uh, and encourage your team to read it. So,
1: yeah, thanks. I think we have a few copies left. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, fe- I, I don't feel I should be tightening my books, but um, I used to, you know, I used to say, I don't really mind whether you read my books, I just want you to buy them. Uh, but now i tend to think uh, a little bit more um, i do actually want people to read what i'm saying because i think we've uh, we've made a lot as a sector we've made a lot of mistakes which i'm sure again we we'll, we will come to uh, in the past
0: yeah and you and you say i mean you're, you're you've been incredibly influential with actionaid and uh actually giving them the name ActionAid. I wasn't aware of so there you go. So you've been involved for over 40 years and what makes you so passionate about the work you do there? Uh,
1: Well I have to say that I think ActionAid has been at least as good to me as um, I've uh, you know in terms of what I've done for them. Uh, They've uh, been a fantastic organization to work with. I've visited their work in many countries and um, I'm always amazed and inspired by the quality of the work they do and also the uh, the value for money that I think their donors get in terms of making a difference. And, you know, I used to sort of think, I, I, when I visited ActionAid's work in the field, I would think I I just wish I had my donors sitting on my shoulders uh, and so that they could see what I can see and taste what I can taste and feel what I can feel. Uh, because then they would be ours for life, uh, because the, the work of ActionAid was was um, uh, was so great. I'm not so much involved with ActionAid now. They do occasionally send me through their strategy, uh, their international strategy, to comment on, and usually I'm quite um, uh, predictable in the kind of things that I pick up on. Um, but, uh, you know, I've really seen through... You know, I worked with ActionAid in a whole variety of different roles, but I came back, having left ActionAid in the 80s to start my agency, I came back and joined their board in 1993, I think it was. And, um, and in fact, and they made me chair of the board in 95 or 96, I can't quite remember. Um, so I, they gave me the experience of being a chair of trustees in a top 20 charity. And at a time when we were moving from being a, a northern-based, um, London-centric NGO, we then introduced a program which we called Internationalization. This was all down to um, our first chief executive recruited from one of our program countries with a guy called Celio He went on to become um, General Secretary of Amnesty International. Uh, quite brilliant guy. And he led the internationalization process. And I, as chair of trustees, had to manage this through the trustee board. And, and we kind of worked together. It, so it was a great experience of working with a, a super intellectual uh, leader um, working with Salil, but also um, we recruit. We 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 changed the board completely. When I started with Action Aid, the board were all exclusively white, middle class, rich men from the south of England, and we became a a, a, a truly international board. A, we had a tiny budget for the trustees, and I changed that and started getting um, people from Brazil, people from Guatemala, uh, Malawi, Uganda, um, all over the world, uh, Thailand. So we had all the colours of the marketplace, all the uh, vibrancy and and flavours of uh, of the. The countries in which we worked and we became a much better organization as a result. This was an absolutely fantastic experience and of course the first thing that we moved towards was gender balance. So we became a very balanced board and the quality of our discussions and our decision making shot up as a result and the, the everybody who worked with ActionAid absolutely loved it. It was a great, um, one of the best finest experiences uh, of my career so um yeah uh i i think the biggest thing that i saw in action aid was i mean we made a lot of mistakes we did a lot of things that weren't right we uh you know as any organization will do but um but i think we delivered real value for donors money um and who's been your best mentors or influences in the fundraising profession i mean I've been inspired, I've been lucky to work with great people through the course of my career. Slightly concerned because um, too many of those are elderly white men. And I I do think we uh, as a profession are now becoming more diverse and and we're reaping the benefits of that in a fantastic way. But many of the people that I worked in my early career were old white guys. (laughs) So, um, I was mentioning my uh, business partner, George Smith, who wrote a book called Asking Properly, um, and has written several, uh, he has a a whole archive of his work on the SOPHIE website. And George was a great uh, person to work with. But, um, you know, so I could mention Roger Craver, Tom Ahern, Harvey McKinnon, Nick Allen, but I've also worked with some great women. Uh, I'm a big fan of Lisa Sargent. I, I work with uh, um, people like Jude, Dr. Judy Nichols from the USA, uh, Kay Sprinkle Grace. Um, uh, but, you know, loads and loads of people have been influential in my... Because I'm, I'm a, I've always been a bit of a magpie for picking up ideas from other people and I've never, I've always thought it was really kind of foolish to imagine that you, that you know everything. So um, I have to mention two really formative influences on me which were Giles Pegram and Alan Clayton um, but the greatest influence on me in my working life has been um, my wife Marie, uh, my late wife Marie who died last year uh, and she was the best uh, guide and mentor, I think, for uh, all the things that I've done throughout. She actually found me the job in ActionAid in 1977 uh, and got me to apply for it. So if it hadn't been for her, none of this would be happening. So yeah, loads loads and loads of influences, uh, Jake, absolutely loads of them. And,
0: um, yeah, now talking about how you influence others i mean you're you're the author of seven incredible and world renowned books within the fundraising profession, and for anyone new to the profession what which book of yours should they pick up first,
1: and why <laughs> well i i mean that that's a that's a difficult choice. They should buy them all, of course, you know it's the only way to go um but uh, I uh, well, as I said, I used to say to people, I I don't mind if you don't read my books. I, loads of people claim to be relationship fundraisers, and they will probably have my book, uh, relationship fundraising, on their bookshelf. But I sometimes talk to them and wonder if they ever actually read or pick up anything from it. Um, I'm most keen on my latest book, which is Storytelling Can Change the World, uh, because uh, I think, looking back, I've been a professional storyteller all of my life, uh, but I didn't really start writing about storytelling as a must-do activity for fundraisers until 2006, when I wrote a book called The Zen of Fundraising, which is and I'm actually quite keen on this, the format of the Zen of fundraising is it's 89 specific ideas, aspects, concepts that have been influential in my fundraising career and they're kind of bite-sized, you can kind of dip into it, they're very digestible, but a bit like our I Wish I'd Thought of that conferences where people get 7 minutes to talk about something that has really influenced them and so the zen of fundraising is like you know a few minutes on each of the important things that matter and i'm uh, i'm just at the moment i've been approached by a publisher to to do a new book of that sort about fundraising and campaigning uh, so you never know so the ne- so the best book will always be the next book i suppose but um you know, I, I I also feel that because, you know, we live in a world where, sadly, books are, are not perhaps as popular, particularly business books, and business books tend to be pretty dull anyway, except mine. And um, so, you know, I've, I've tried to make things like the Sophie website and short videos, as, as uh, Jacob, I know it's an area of your particular expertise. Um, so I'm quite keen to uh, get guys like you. I think there's a huge potential in really quite short, um, mini, well, the kind of things that have entertained us so much during lockdown, where people send through these tiny little highly amusing video clips. I think we need tiny, maybe amusing, but highly inspirational video clips that that kind of capture the essence of what we are all about, uh, and we need to find ways to share those as well. So, um, but yeah, um, storytelling can change the world. I've still got a few of those left. If people want to want to contact me.
0: Yeah, I, I I can't argue with that. I think that was uh, a great plug for the for the website, so I'll take that. But so we're on. So you say um, around your book around storytelling. So I think that's a good lead into um, that se- this section of the interview. But when it comes to appeal time, what goes into telling a powerful story to attract new donors?
1: Um, well, I I think the first thing that you have to to say when you're uh, uh, a storyteller is um, that uh, you know, you'll start to succeed when, as an organization, you stop saying, this is what we do, and you start saying, this is what you make possible. And I think that's a very, very fundamental different starting point for most charities. and, and it, the, to, To really see this at its worst is to look at a selection of charity annual reports where you get these organizations talking about how great they are Uh, and all these are the great things we do and this is how we're organized and you know here's the chief executive's message and here's the chairman of trustees message and it's all about us and what we do and and i mean i just think that's the wrong way to to start your 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 story Um, because the story is not about us and what we do. It's about what our donors enable us to do. And and that's a different starting point for the story. So I I think if you're storytelling, I mean, there's there's as many ways of telling stories as there are people to tell them to. Um, But you need to be real. You need to be you. you. You don't want to be copying the kind of gurus, the Tom Ahernes or the Lisa Sargents or the Alan Claytons. You need to learn to be you. It has to be real. And I believe everyone can tell a gripping story with power and passion that will move people to action, but it has to be real. So my view is our business is the truth told well. Um, and, you know, if you. I quote frequently um, the book *Le Petit Prince* uh, by uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, which uh, is a, is a sound, looks like a children's story, but it isn't really. Um, but in *Le Petit Prince*, *Le Petit Prince*, he says that if you want people to build a ship, don't give them uh, hammers and nails and wood and and uh, the means to construct it. He says, what you need to do is to teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And that's how you get people to build a ship. You teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And so I think, you know, for us, um, we need to tell stories uh, instinctively, but but in the most inspirational uh, way. And I think if you... First of all, you've got to really understand your work, so you have to visit the work. When you do, stories kind of leap out at you, you know? I mean, I've traveled extensively in Africa and Asia and Latin America, and, and you know, just, it's the same excitement that you get when you visit these countries and you see the way people live, and, and the storytellers, um, they kind of just, just leap out at you, but, um, I think we need to have the right attitude to our storytelling. It has to be the truth told well. And who should be the storyteller?
0: Should the story be told even from the the content writer's perspective if they're being to the field
1: or does it need to come through the CEO? I I really don't think it should be the CEO because so often when the CEO writes to you, it sounds like some stuffed shirt or suit or twin set and pearls You know somebody who's you you know been had the story put in front of them it's not their story and so they're not going to tell it with the same passion as you know it it should be real so if you've got somebody who's visited your project get them to tell the story but you the fundraiser you know your job is to find yourself one-to-one talking to donors. And whether you're writing a direct mail appeal that will go to 100,000 people, or you're preparing a TV commercial that will go to several millions, or whether you're talking about stopping somebody in the street and talking to them one-to-one, or picking up the telephone and talking to them, you have to be a storyteller. And if you're not a storyteller, you will not be a great fundraiser. So you need to tell the stories. And everybody can tell stories. Um, it, it's not that there's no. I would rather have a sincere story, not told so well, than somebody who's slick and smart. And when I was working in America, I, I saw so many people who could stand up, and they were so accomplished, and they, you know, were slick, and they used auto cues, and they. Strode from one end of the stage to the other, and I just thought, you know this is phony, this is not real, and I think donors see through that, so you know it's really it has to it, the story has to come from the the heart and 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 that 's why we, you know i 've been banging on about emotional storytelling and um the use and misuse of emotion was my project for the Commission on the donor experience, and I I think there are something like forty different contributions to that project, and they're all on Sophie. And um, yeah, I learned such a lot in the process of putting that together. Um, but I still think I'm in the foothills of exploring exploring the subject of emotional fundraising, and um, and it's something that we have to do carefully because it's very easy to abuse our donors by misusing emotional, the power of emotion. And emotion will always win over reason. I mean, giving is not a reasonable thing to do. Giving somebody part of your money who you don't know, that's, that's an entirely illogical thing to do. So it has to have emotional content. And we really need to be masters of emotion and we need to have integrity so that we can master emotions um, effectively, but also impeccably. We can't allow ourselves to be seen to be manipulating our donors. We have to do it with, with absolute integrity, integrity and absolute sincerity. So, um, you know, these things I think are all key key parts um but everyone can tell a gripping story we need to get much better at it because so much of what you see from charities we produce 30 page reports that you lose the will to live on halfway down page three um you know that's that's the wrong you're you're we're great at information jake people put out information And information is not the same as communication. We produce shed loads of information and people just ignore it. It doesn't get through or it doesn't stick. Communication, information is giving out, communication is getting through. There's a fundamental difference between the two.
0: You mentioned like (laughs) some organizations are doing it better than others. Is there an example of an organization that you could say is doing storytelling.
1: Yeah I think lots lots are actually. Um, uh, I mean the the organizations well probably the organizations that I think do do this very well. Um, One is we've just been covering on Sophie because of their response to the COVID-19 emergency is an organization called the Bhopal Medical Appeal which was founded in India uh, after the Bhopal disaster where you, um, poisonous gas spilled out in the city of Bhopal and killed tens of thousands of people. Um, and they've just been running ads in the British press explaining that their health systems set up 25 years ago in India are, um, are actually a potential um, solution. They've actually had no cases of COVID within their communities because they already have a system of um, protection and uh, cleanliness and washing and, and all of that. And they've put this into a booklet. And they're now saying, you're the, you're the British people, helped us when we had a catastrophe. And now we want to give something back to you. And I mean, that, that is fantastic stuff. There's another organization. I mean, I was reading, looking at some stuff from WaterAid recently. And there's another organization which which does solar lamps for Africa called SolarAid. And they are fantastic, both of those organizations, about talking about basic needs that are delivered. And and they tell their stories with such wit and um, character. Uh, that that they're that they're irresistible, but the w- one that I should mention is the National Youth Orchestra. So, I, I, and they're very close to my heart because I've worked with them over um, probably the last fifteen years or so. But they only started professional fundraising in 2017. But they started with an absolute commitment to putting their supporter at the at the heart of their strategy rather than focusing on the money they wanted to raise and so they've been focusing on delivering a great supporter experience and they so they just started like just over two years ago really um to tell their stories and what they've got of course is wonderful classical music world-class performances from people under the age of 18 but over the age of 14 who are playing their heart out, who have a very brief window of time in which they can be on a world stage um, playing at the proms at the Royal Albert Hall or wherever it might be. Um, They are considered to be the best orchestra for young people in the world and they are just fantastic in how they inspire their supporters who are almost Uh, entirely music lovers who love the fact that uh, music education which is suffering so badly in the traditional education system is actually being promoted by this tiny uh, orchestra with such commitment and and care so they they are fantastic storytellers it's worth getting on their mailing list just give them a very large donation to start off with and, and you'll see some good stuff.
0: Yeah there's some great references that uh, fundraisers can use in there so on the flip side of uh, what you were saying before about you know manipulating donors through their storytelling and you know it goes back to 2015 after the big media crisis broke out in the UK um, over the inappropriate fundraising practices and you created the six P's, which is a blueprint for transforming fundraising as part of your work that you did for the commission on the donor experience. But can you give us an overview of the six P's and why it's important in today's fundraising profession?
1: Yeah, OK. Well, the, the thing about the six P's was it was um, <clears throat> it was a document that was uh, only started after we had completed the twenty 28- eight. Detailed projects uh, of the Commission on the donor experience, and those projects collectively produced thousands of pages uh, of really good content. The whole the, the whole thing is available on Sophie on the homepage of Sophie. You can see the 28 projects, <clears throat> and um, uh, I was given the job of trying to condense all these thousands of pages, which had come from. I mean, we had. 2,000 volunteers working on this Commission for the Donor Experience and it was attempting to define a culture change in fundraising. What do we need to do to put the donor at the heart of our strategies rather than financial targets? Um, And how could we do that in a way that meant that donors would actually enjoy the experience of being a donor rather than cross the street to avoid us, um, and as a result would stay longer and give much more, and then give us a legacy at the end. So at condensing all this information into eight pages, a summary, um, the essence of the work of the Commission, I think was probably the most difficult copywriting job I've ever been given. And, um, uh, And so I would like people to read the six P's document, which is also available free from Sophie. It'll take you about half an hour probably to read because it's quite packed, eight quite packed pages. And the six P's stand for purpose, which is why why we're doing this, why change in fundraising is not just due, it's overdue. Uh, there's, um, the second P is for permanent change. We were not looking for a cosmetic piece of sticking plaster. The In 2015, Jake, the media assault on fundraising charities was catastrophic. People were leaving the sector because being a fundraiser was just being portrayed in such a negative light. And we, you know, really, it was a crisis. It was an emergency for us. So we wanted a new bright future um, that would under, you know, that would um, uh, uh, underpin the donor-cause relationship. So the third P was the principles that fundraising should be founded upon um and there are seven fundamental principles that we identified from for that document then the fourth p was the pillars upon which the change would be built and there are 12 of them uh, then we asked um well we th- sorry the the fifth p was um practical actions out of the the uh 28 reports on different areas of fundraising, we collected 526 individual practical changes that organizations should try to make. Some of them very simple and straightforward, some of them really quite complex. So this was talking about the practical actions that you can do in your organization to make your your organization more donor-centric and more effective. And then the final P uh, stands for a promise. And it's a promise to donors that in future we will conduct our organization. And we were asking every organization to make that commitment. Uh, and to be honest with you, I'm not sure how many have. But uh, those that have, I think, will find that they're donors. These are the ones that have been enjoying um, terrific fundraising successes during the, the fundraising um, Uh, sorry, the coronavirus pandemic, which has been an an, an actually actually an object lesson in the difference between fundraisers who have really looked at what's involved in fundraising nowadays and are putting into practice what I call the new era of responsible fundraising, um, and those that are still wandering around without any real clear understanding of what's going on in fundraising. So a large number of charities at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis furloughed their fundraisers, you know, because they were saying, you know, we're going to lose a lot of money now. Uh, And of course, you're going to lose a lot of money if you haven't got your fundraisers working. So, you know, I mean, that's a no-brainer. And then those organizations who realized that actually at this time, the most important asset that a a charity can have is a strong, well-motivated, inspired, and substantial file of individual donors, you know, most of whom are also worried about the future. But, if, you know, if, we look at, if you look at how the public responded, it, you've heard the story of Captain Tom, the, the guy who set out to raise a thousand pounds for the British Uh, National Health Service, and he ended up raising for, you know, he was like, he's 99 years old and he wanted to do a walk for for his 100th birthday. And he raised over 40 million pounds from nearly 2 million new donors who had been so inspired despite coronavirus. You know, maybe because of coronavirus, they were inspired by a hero. The, The donating public loves a hero. And they gave freely because people, you know, people give to need. Of course they give to need, but they also need to give. And this is the phenomenon that that most people in charity boards don't get. They think that fundraising is about asking people for money. How stupid can you be if you think that fundraising is about asking people for money? That's the last thing you
0: do. Do you find that this is generally the advice that you give to fundraising teams to improve their relationships with donors?
1: Um, well, I, you know, I have made a career out of the bleeding obvious, Jay. You know, I don't know if you remember Faulty Towers and Basil Forty was always talking about the, the bleeding obvious. And, you know, the, the core of my thesis is that if you're nice to people, if you treat them properly, they'll be nice back to you. I mean, it's, and know it's, it's really simple. It's, you know, it's childish. Uh, but I, I get invited to your part of the world <laughs> to lecture to fundraisers on just that simple philosophy. Um, so, sorry, remind me of your question. You were asking about relationship fundraising and how, how people build relationships. I mean, building relationships is... You don't need me, but people like me, to tell you how to build relationships because that's as natural and as human and and as ancient as as time itself. But people do need to be told that if you start by asking for money, you won't get it and you won't actually deserve it, you know, because fundraising is about work that needs doing. It's about making a difference. It's one person talking to another person about something they both cared about. And that one person is saying, look, together we can can do something and it will be worth doing. And people get such a, you know, they get an incredible kick out of being a donor. Being a donor is good for you. You'll live longer. You'll be healthier. Your marriage will be better. And, you know, why can't we sell this to people? Why can't we sell this people? Because we start by doorstepping them and asking them for money and making them feel uncomfortable and making them feel they've got to cross the road to avoid us, silly. Yeah, I'm getting a bit, I'm getting a bit uh, old and cranky, Jake, you know. Um, I've been beating this drum for decades. And I sometimes wonder, you know, my mother used to say to me, when are you gonna get a proper job? And, uh, and I never did really. I have to say, you know, I, I do think actually one thing that's come through with the coronavirus, uh, coronavirus crisis is that I do think that the the supporter experience argument is now front and, and center, and and people like the Institute of Fundraising in the UK have have picked up on that. And you know, I was in Australia just recently, uh, just before lockdown and um, you know everybody was were they, we were all talking from the same hymn sheet and New Zealand too I actually even went to New Zealand and and spoke to New Zealand fundraisers Jake you'll be very proud of me and um in fact they were they were you know what I'd noticed was that the people coming to the events coming paying to listen to me Um, were much more senior fundraisers than usually come on the conference circuit. And there were much more... um, There were communications and fundraising people together. I I can never understand why organisations have one department for fundraising and one department for communications. That is insane because fundraising is simply communication. And if you have people communicating with your donors who don't understand fundraising, you're, well, I'm trying to be polite. You're doing something seriously wrong.
0: And I've been involved in an organization that had that exact same problem. So why is this a problem? Why are they separate? Is Is it problems at the executive level
1: implementing
0: these false assumptions?
1: Yeah, it's about organization. It's a, it's the way organizations are. It's like the way boards are, you know, that are certain, there's a certain dynamic that is kind of self-perpetuating. And so people, you know, I'm the director of communications, that's my turf, you know, don't you dare step on my turf. Um, so I'm gonna do the newsletter and you just send it out to your donors. And, and you think, you know, where's the chief executive? You should be saying, in the name of sanity, that's the wrong way to go about producing something that will get through, rather than will just be a piece of information that people open, look at, and forget. Yeah,
0: and how, where do you most commonly see uh, where fundraisers, where fundraising
1: managers or leaders need to upskill? Yeah, you know, uh, people want to rush into the bright shiny things whereas actually we need to spend a lot more time on the fundamentals the, the essential foundations of what fundraising really is all about and if I were a fundraising leader today I would not allow any of my fundraising colleagues to progress until they had mastered the basics of their craft and I, so I, you know I think that's 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 one area um, I do think you know we we do, we all spend a lot of time at um, at conferences and networking and things like that, but i'm not sure uh whether everybody is learning or whether they're more socializing sometimes at these events not that i'm against socializing i love i love socializing but i do um i do sometimes think that people you know need to be more um more clear about essentially it's a leadership thing you if your leader is going to make sure that you have all the resources at your fingertips that you need to have and that you're proficient and uh, fluent in the fundamentals of your craft, then I think your fundraising will prosper and you'll be happier and your donors will be happier too. Um, So, so yeah, I think, I still think there's quite a lot um, to do. One of the big things that people have to do is to perfect what. Uh, my friend and colleague Giles Pegram uh, uh, used to call the 90-degree shift and that was um, seeing things through, you know, it's donor's shoes, putting yourself, this sounds rather uncomfortable to do, putting yourself in your donor's shoes, seeing things through the donor's eyes. But if you can make that shift in perspective, it will improve your communications, your storytelling uh, because, you know, well, as Robert Burns used, the great Scottish poet used to say, or would some power the gifties give us to see ourselves as others see us? It would from many a blunder free us and foolish notion. Because you know, we need to we need to step outside ourselves and get rid of organization speak. My goodness. I mean, I've worked in the international development field for ages. And they produce these endlessly turgid documents that even their mothers wouldn't read. And they, have, they start each document, which runs on for 40 pages or whatever, with a list of acronyms so that you can understand all of the jargon and gobbledygook that's coming your way. And you know, we just need to get outside this. And if we can't see that, we're failing, to make that 90 degree shift and see things through our through our public's eyes. If we were in a commercial sales organization, the, the customer is always right. And have you ever experienced
0: or seen a board or executive team um, being a blockage to doing great fundraising? And how did you overcome this? <laughs>
1: right. Well, um, <laughs> sorry, uh, that is a that's a that's a great question. Um I mean that's what boards do by by definition. I've I've sat on many boards, I've worked with loads of boards um, uh, because you know I ran an agency which was the first agency to specialize in the not-for-profit sector in Europe Uh, and I ran that agency for 20 years uh, and we worked for hundreds of clients and so often the board was a barrier. Uh, and I think there are two things that you hear at fundraising, at international conferences, where people will say, that's a great idea, but it'll never work in my country because we're different, which is almost always wrong. Uh, and then the other one is, that's a great idea, but we'll never get it past our trustees. And that is all too often true. Um, and I've worked with captains of industry, uh, academic leaders, you know, people of real prominence, and really good people with very good intentions. But it's like they leave their brains at the door when they go into a trustees meeting, and they don't realize that the laws of um, business and commerce apply in the not-for-profit sector. And, um, you know, and we can't accept that. We have to make sure that our boards understand the dynamic that has happened in fundraising, the changes that have happened in fundraising, this thing that I've talked about, which I call the new new era of responsible fundraising, which is actually a phrase I've pinched from someone else. I'm not above pinching stuff if I think it's good. Um, We need to make sure that our boards fully get these things. And once they do, then they show why they're, well, why they're captains of industry why they're business leaders or um uh, academic stars superstars they show that once they get it because you know you give i mean i remember when the, a guy who was um he was the the chairman of one of britain's biggest insurance companies and you know we were giving us a very hard time because we were trying to introduced transformational change to one of the big causes of which he was the chairman of trustees. And he didn't get it at all. And then suddenly, um, he, you know, he, he spent enough time. And this is the thing, people kind of come to trustee boards and they think that by definition they must know it all, and that it has to be easy if a charity does it. Um, and so they don't need to do their homework. So this guy did it, and from then on, he awoke. And the next day, he awoke with a new vision, and he led that charity into transformational change, and it was hugely effective. So, so you know, you have to work at this, Jake. Uh, it's not easy, but um, and it breaks the heart of so many good fundraisers. It is tragic, which is why I actually advocate that fundraisers make a deliberate decision to join a charity board and see what it's like to be a charity board. And don't let the rest of the board think, oh, you're the guy who will handle fundraising Um, because everybody on the board needs to be involved in fundraising. It's not a a responsibility that you can shuffle off to a subcommittee. I always would cancel uh, fundraising subcommittees I, I think everybody on the board needs to be involved in fundraising. That's a
0: really great way of putting it. And speaking of uh, being on the trustee, you're also the founder and managing trustee of Sophie, uh, oh, yeah. the showcase of <laughs> the showcase of fundraising innovation and inspiration, um, the website. So, what gave you the idea to start this, and how did you go about creating it?
1: Okay, well, um, Marie and I uh, were, we were actually on our way to Australia. Uh, We were leaving from Paddington on the Heathrow Express. I remember it because it was just one of those transformational things. And I was talking to Marie about the fact that, in my experience, I so often see people reinventing the wheel without realizing that they're doing it. And I had been working with an organization called BookAid. And this story is told on Sophie, so I won't go into it. But basically, we, they got into financial difficulty. They were about to lay off all of their staff or a large part of their staff. And I suggested that they should start a, a major donor, uh, sorry, a regular donor um, proposition which was called the, the Reverse Book Club. And five years later, cat long story short, the director of Book Aid took me out to lunch and he said, the Reverse Book Club has uh, saved Book Aid, and we're actually getting more money. They'd been, their government funding had been cut. And in fact, in the five years, they built it up to more than replace that government funding. And he said, uh, you know, so that's why I'm buying you lunch. And I said, well, it's very nice that you're buying me lunch, but actually it's nice that you think that was my idea, but it wasn't my idea. I borrowed the idea from, as it happens, the American Bible Society, who'd run a scheme in China that I just happened to know about because I know about these things. And, And I was saying to Marie, you know, what we need is somewhere like a museum of fundraising that collects all of the best campaigns from all over the world So that people can look at them and and learn from them and share successes and that's how the Sophie idea was was born and it was by the time we'd got from Paddington to Heathrow we had a basic shape of it. It was also not long after I had sold my agency and I was looking for a way to put something back into fundraising because of the great things that fundraising had done for me and so I create we, Marie and I created a website and the Sophie Foundation and I went and actually did my first major donor fundraising for a while and I sat in the House of Lords with a very eminent uh, guy and left with 25,000 pounds to help set up Sophie and I was kind of you know it was great I was starting a small a small charity of my of my own, and now Sophie is. I mean, Sophie lives on a shoestring and um, depends on volunteers and uh, all sorts of things. But it's but it's become fairly well established, and it's uh, it's had very useful spin-offs. Like uh, I wish I'd thought of that, uh, and uh, and I'm quite pleased that it's doing useful stuff, and I hope you know I just. It's all there, it's free, it's 24 seven, and some people make great use of it, but probably more people don't. And that's that's a pity. So, you know, this constant, if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. And here we've made education as inexpensive as we possibly could. Uh, now, now, you know, go forth. And, um, and do something about it. And you've done many incredible
0: things and achieved some of the highest accolades in the fundraising profession. But what are you next
1: striving for? Okay, right. Well, that's a good. Um, that's a good. That's a good question. I um. I have been working, in the last little while, um. On a, something new i mean the the fact is, Jake, as you can tell, I should have retired long 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 ago um but I do love what i what I do, and i um and despite that i I think it is time for me to hang up my boots as a as a kind of fundraising consultant um so in my local village in Suffolk, we have created. The best little local amateur dramatics production company in all of England, I'm sure. Um, and I've actually written and directed and appeared in three plays now, to packed houses and rave reviews. And um, and there's another in the pipeline, which we hope to put on if COVID permitting. We hope to put on. Uh, at Christmas time Uh, and it's going to be a play for children and so one of the one of the three plays that I have done already was a play for children and I absolutely loved it because um, because the children produced such a chaotically exuberant response to what we were doing.
0: Oh that's great well I wasn't prepared for that but that was a great answer. What's your final piece of advice to inspire and fulfill fundraisers to make a positive impact and create change for a better world?
1: Wow. Well, I think stick at what you do and make it what you want it to be, if you possibly can. Um, I I remember one piece of advice that my much younger colleague, Alan Clayton, gave me. And when he was talking about some of the difficulties that heeding... experienced in his business life and he said he he said I have a 10-word mantra and these 10 words none of them are more than two letters long and the mantra was if it is to be it is up to me and I you know you started by asking me about my early start in fundraising. And I said to you, I've been very lucky. And I think I have been lucky, but I also think that the harder I work, the luckier I get. And I do think that people, it is all there. If you wish to excel at your chosen, I mean, I'm not sure it is a profession, but it, call it a profession, Craft, art, it's a bit of both. It's a bit of all, actually. Um, but I do think we can be the change we want to see in this world. But you have to work hard at it to make it happen. And that starts with having a good appreciation of the basics. Well, Kim Vernet, thank you so much for coming on for Phil today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me.